Please join me in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, I praise you for the glory of your resurrection. We will for all eternity be marveling at the wonder of your deeds. Lord, I ask you to help me preach now, and I pray for each one of us, Lord, that you would help us to exercise faith in you, help us to trust you. For I pray this in your holy name. Amen. You may be seated. This um, Easter morning, I want to talk to you about the connection between seeking and expectations, or in particular, when one goes seeking, what is the experience they have, and what happens when that experience doesn't line up with what they expected? And to begin, I want to tell you a story from when I was probably in third or fourth grade. So children, listen up here. Third or fourth grade, what do you do when your school is putting on a talent show and you have no talent? I mean, that's a, that's a tight spot to be in. So what I did is I got a book on magic tricks, and I thought, I'm going to learn a magic trick and impress them with that talent. And I don't remember all the details around it, but I must have practiced this trick hundreds of times because without even having to ask anyone else, I remember the magic trick. In fact, you might be able to try it today if you go out to lunch after church. All it involves is a quarter and a salt shaker and a napkin. And I said to my impressed audience, I'm going to make this quarter pass through the table. So I set the quarter on the table. I put the salt shaker on it. I spread a napkin over it, and then I kind of bunched it up and held my hand like that. And then I said, magic trick, I am able, make this coin pass through the table. And I hit it. Did you hear the coin drop? I didn't hear the coin drop. Something must have gone wrong. And then I point at the quarter, and I go, ah, it's still there. I got the words wrong. However, what they don't know is when I pulled my hand back here, I loosened my grip, and the salt shaker dropped out of the napkin into my lap. And I went, ah, now I've got the words right, I remember. And I put it back over here, but now it's just an empty napkin in the, sh in the shape of a salt shaker. And I went, abracadabra, I am able to make this coin pass through the table. And I hit it extra hard and went flat like that. And then I lifted up the napkin, and the quarter's, of course, still there. And at the same time, I spread my knees, and the salt shaker dropped onto the floor. And they were in amazement. <laughs> See, it's, there's no magic. It's just sleight of hand. And I got their attention on the quarter. And so they were, I mean, they were probably not thinking I was going to actually pass a quarter through a table. They thought I was going to do some trick with the quarter. Nobody was expecting the salt shaker to go through the table. And so what happens when your experience doesn't line up with your expectations is it causes kind of a short circuit in your mind, and then there's frenetic activity to try and figure out what happened. They did figure it out pretty quickly. <laughs> but the same thing happens in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 16, the beginning of that morning on Easter morning, the expectations did not match their experience. And so when that happens, you have to adjust. Now, Mark's gospel is all about expectations. In fact, it's about wrong expectations of different people groups. What were the women expecting on Easter morning? Well, they were surprised when they got to an open tomb. Verse 1 says this, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, 
bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance? When the Sabbath had passed means the Sabbath for Jews went from Friday night at sundown till Saturday night at sundown. When it passed, it had gotten dark. They went over to the spice cellar and paid money to get spices to anoint a body. But it was dark, so they couldn't go to the tomb. So they just slept on it. Very early at first light, they go to the tomb with their spices, and they're thinking there's going to be a stone, a big stone rolled over the entrance. How are we going to get that open? They were expecting a closed tomb, and that's not what they found. Their experience didn't match their expectations. But unfortunately for us, in our modern burial practice, if you're picturing a cemetery with headstones and a hole dug in the ground and a coffin or an urn going in and then a shovel of dirt on top, this story makes no sense. Thankfully, you guys, our church, kindly sent my family to the Holy Land a couple of summers ago, and I took some pictures of actual tombs. I want to show you one. There's a picture here that I took of a tomb on the roadside. If you can't quite see from the back, that's a guardrail in the front, and there's a square dark opening cut into a rock, and there's a round stone that would roll over that opening. And we were just, we were somewhere up near Nazareth, and the bus driver just pulled over, and the tour guide got on the microphone and said, okay, everyone, look out the left window. I just want to show you one of these tombs. There are many of these in Israel all over the land. And I took a picture through the bus window, so it's not a great picture. But the way this worked is you would have a body, wrap it up in spices in a linen cloth, and you would carry it down into that hole. And down in there is kind of a trench carved out that you could walk in and work in, and then there's like a niche cut into the side, and you would lay the body on that, on that little ledge. Then you'd come out and roll that big stone in front of the opening, and you would wait. That was the first burial. You would wait a year for decay to happen. And oftentimes, above there, there's an, a, some kind of a vent so that oxygen can get in and speed up decay, but the stone stops animals and grave robbers from going in there. I actually have a second picture I took. Let me show you a different one. Um, this next picture is, it's called the garden tomb. It's much bigger. Um, that's Father Mark Eldridge coming out of it. And you can see the big open window up high for ventilation. That one actually had a room to pre prepare your spices, and it had space for three different bodies. So when it says that the angel was in there sitting on the right-hand side, I, I don't know exactly what the tomb was like, but it was something like this. And they had to stoop to get down into it and they were bringing their spices, and even Mark is stepping over a little ledge. You can see that's where the big round stone would roll in that track there, right? So this is how they did burial, and they were going there looking and expecting that kind of a, a tomb to be closed and a stone in front of it, and they would anoint the body, and then they'd wait a year, and then they would get an ossuary, which is a box that's about a foot by a foot by two feet, big enough to hold a human skull and long enough to hold a femur. And they would go back a year later when all the organic material has mostly decomposed, and they would grab the bones and put them in the ossuary, and then they would take that box, and they would put it with others from the family all the generations before. That's why it makes sense when it says they laid Jesus in a tomb that had never been used before in one of the other Gospels. How is a tomb reused? Well, that's how. They just keep de decomposing bodies in these tombs, and then they put them in the box. So it's very different. And the women were going to complete that first burial process of anointing his body. 
So what were they expecting? Well, they were expecting a stone to block the entrance. And, you know, Mark's gospel is not very flattering of the disciples. He has, in his gospel, different groups of people. There were the crowds who were following Jesus because he could heal them, and he fed them miraculously with food, not because he was God. They were following after the signs. There were the religious leaders who knew God was at work, but they were jealous of the crowds and popularity, and so they decided to put him to death. And then there were the disciples who were constantly shown as being obtuse and slow of understanding and getting it wrong and making the wrong conclusions from what Jesus was teaching. And his gospel comes to this conclusion at the the, um, cross. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Mark shows everybody getting it wrong except the Roman centurion and in the last moment. Now, if you're going to make up a story, this is terrible. You get four people to corroborate their stories, and they have all the same details, and you have the heroes, the disciples, look great and make the religion look great. Unless that's actually not a made-up story, and this is just recording what happened. So some of the details are different in the Gospels because they're from different perspectives, and the disciples really were slow to understand. And that's how it happened. Now, C.S. Lewis used the term chronological snobbery for us, that we feel like we're smarter than people in the ancient days. I can promise you they were equally as smart as we are. However, I stand here with the Holy Spirit of God in my heart, with decades of discipleship under my belt, with 2,000 years of church history, and a completed canon of Scripture nicely bound in leather. I can tell you if we ever invent a time machine, I'm going back to this weekend I'm going to be there on Good Friday, and I'm going to watch our Lord take those nails for our sins and die for us and pay for my my penalty, and then I'm going to go set up a chair with the guards at the tomb and say, hey, fellas, I'm going to be with you until the third day. And I'm going to sit there like this looking at that stone. I don't know how it happened. I don't know if angels rolled it. I don't know if Jesus resurrected and with his resurrected arm just went over and pushed the stone out of the way. I don't know how, how that all happened. I just know that it did happen. I am convinced that. My expectations are that that stone was rolled away, Jesus was resurrected, and is alive. Those expectations are very different than what the women were expecting when they went there. Mark 16 is about seeking Jesus with greater expectations. So they went, and they were surprised by an open tomb. They were looking for a stone. They also were looking for a body, and they were surprised to find that the tomb wasn't empty. There was an angel in it. The Lord had sent an angel to adjust their expectations, to help line up what they were experiencing with what they were expecting to experience. You know, he did tell them quite a bit. Listen to some things in Mark's gospel that Jesus promised. In chapter 8, verse 31, it says, he began to teach them, meaning he didn't say this once, he started to repeatedly teach them this, that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. That's the first time. And he starts to teach this over and over and over again. In chapter 9, ongoing participle, he was teaching them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. And then Mark says this, but they did not understand, and they were afraid to ask him. And then in chapter 10, now they're on the road to Jerusalem. 
he began to tell them what was to happen to him. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus was so clear in his teaching of what was going to happen and that on the third day he was going to rise. And they just didn't get it. And so what does he do? He sends an angel to help adjust their expectations. And the angel tells them their heart's desire. In verse 6 it says, first of all, he calms their fear. Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. Have you ever had somebody tell you what you were desiring before you quite realized what it was? Mike, you look really hungry. Are you hungry? Uh, yeah, actually I am. I didn't, we're not always in touch with what we're desiring. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, ladies. You're going about it the wrong way, though. He didn't say that, but he might have thought it. You're here to anoint a body, and I'm telling you there's not a body in here because he is alive. As he told you on the third day, this was going to happen. He told you this over and over and over again. You're seeking Jesus of Nazareth, but you're your expectations are wrong. And then in verse 7 and 8, he goes on further, and he says, but go. He says, see the place where he laid. So they could see where the grave clothes were on that bench in there that he's sitting on the right-hand side of. Come in, take a look. Now go. I want you to go and tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Wink, nod, smirk, just as he told you. I mean, I, I think that the angel might have had a little bit of fun with that. I don't know. It's in black and white. I'm reading between the lines there. But, you know, he did tell you this over and over again. And, and I, they, they were so slow of heart to get it. But you know what? So are we. We are slow of heart to understand this. And when it comes to our heart's desires, St. Augustine, the great theologian of the early church, said this, our hearts are restless until they rest in God. And so this morning, I ask you this question. What are you seeking these days in your life? Anything less than Jesus will not ultimately satisfy you. You are seeking ultimately Jesus, and you might be going about it in the wrong way. But he's the one that can satisfy. And here's the message of Easter morning. The tomb was empty, and Jesus is alive. That means he is now at large in the universe, ruling things. He's doing stuff. He's acting in people's lives. He's in charge of history, and he's calling people, and he's interacting with us. He's real. Raise your expectations to that level. Don't let your expectations be defined by just your experience. This is truth. Seek him with greater expectation. Now, consider a couple of scriptures. Many of you know Jeremiah 29, um, 11. You probably have it, some of you probably have it hanging in your house. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a good future and a hope, or something, some variation of that. But do you know the next two verses? The next two say this. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. The Lord wants us to pursue him. The Lord wants us to seek him. That's Jeremiah. Consider Jesus' own words in the New Testament in his Sermon on the Mount. He writes, or he says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. 
Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks him for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? He wants us to ask and to seek and to knock. And he wants us to do that with our whole hearts. God wants your pursuit of him. So the expectations of that first Easter morning, well, the guys were back at the room not even seeking at all. And the women went there seeking a body, and they found an angel. And they were seeking a closed tomb, and they found an open tomb. And then they discovered that Jesus has actually been seeking them all along. And frankly, we're surprised by this as well. Jesus was always three steps ahead of his followers. He was doing more and planning more than they were aware of at the time, and that's still true today. I imagine the conversation he had with that angel. I don't know when that conversation happened, but the Lord knew what he was going to do before the angels of heaven did. And so maybe it went something like this. Hey, angel friend of mine, I've got a really important job for you. My guys don't get it. They're a little slow of heart, slow to understand. And so I want you to be in that empty tomb. I'm going to be resurrected. I'm going into Galilee. I want you to be there. And I want you to help adjust their expectations. And go ahead, have a little fun with it if you'd like but this is your work. I want you to do this. And he sets the angel there. Why? Because Jesus is always at work leading us. He's seeking us so that we will seek him. He's setting this whole thing up. He still does that today. He pursues us so that we'll pursue him. Now, Mark's gospel has a weird ending. If, if it doesn't matter what translation, this is an ESV, but in brackets after verse 8, it says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20. And the scholars are all in agreement. 9 through 20 are not original verses to Mark. The Greek is weird. The grammar and vocabulary is different than him. It's just not his voice. And many of the early manuscripts that we have of the Bible are missing those, those sections. Probably what happened is like when an old book binding is bad and the back cover breaks off and you lose three or four pages, you don't know how the story ends, I think something like that happened with the scroll or the parchment or whatever this was on. And so some scribes made up an ending because Mark certainly didn't, as bad as he made the disciples look, he certainly didn't mean to end it this way. This is verse 8, the last verse of Mark's gospel. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I can't imagine he left it there. But for whatever reason it leaves us with an interesting cliffhanger. It leaves us with this question. What does it mean that Jesus is alive? And 2,000 years of church history and the rest of the New Testament is answering that question. And we're still answering that question. What does it mean that Jesus is alive? They were looking for a stone and they found an open tomb. They were looking for a body and they found an angel. The angel said, you're seeking Jesus, but they learned that he's been seeking them all along. He's been pursuing you as well and dropping clues in your life since the day you were born so that you would pursue him. I say, adjust by increasing your expectations. Others have a negative experience of religion in some way and they change their expectations based on their experience. They say, ah, oh, I tried praying. 
and I didn't like it. God didn't answer the way I wanted him to, so there must not be a God. And what they do is they come up with some intellectually weak excuse for that empty tomb. You know, the burden of proof is on the skeptic because the truth of what happened is so locked tight. It's solid. If you're willing to actually have intellectual integrity and consider this, the empty tomb is the best explanation of all the evidence. But people let their experience determine their expectation, not the other way around. You know, you dabble in religion a little bit, it's a negative experience, and so we throw the whole thing out. Every one of us has tried to pray. And we pray, and we find something out, that this relationship with God is going to be a little different than our relationship with one another. And a lot of people stop seeking and stop pursuing and stop praying because of that. And what I'm saying is, raise your expectation. He's alive and in control of the universe, and he's, he's here in this space. Pursue him until the experience in your life lines up with the expectation that the angel said they should have had. He's alive. Expect more from him, not less. He's alive, and he's in here, and I'm going to talk to him now, and I'm going to invite you to pray as well. Lord, I thank you for this Easter account of your resurrection. I thank you for the way that you pursue us. Lord, I pray that you would have mercy on our lack of faith. Help us in our unbelief. Lord, I pray for anyone who's never trusted in you this morning that you would give them the gift of faith and that they would find you and find the joy of salvation. And for those who've known you for a long time, Lord, but we've, we've lowered our expectations, I pray that you would lift them back up. Help us seek you with even greater expectation. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.